0: So if you don't know me, my name is Nathaniel. I'm one of the leaders here at Gateway Church. Uh, and if I've not met you yet, then I'd love to meet you at the end. So it'd be great to catch up. Uh, you've picked a great week to come if this is your first week, because we are just starting a new preaching series. This preaching series is called Risen with Christ, and we're going to be looking at Colossians 3. So over the next four weeks, we're going to do a big deep dive specifically into Colossians 3. I'm going to start reading from it shortly. So it's page 1187. If you've got a Bible, one of the church Bibles on the, uh, on the chairs next to you, you can uh, keep a finger in page 1187, and we'll go from there. But this morning, I want to start by asking you the question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Now, there's a BBC television series of exactly the same name, Uh, and what they do is they take celebrities through their ancestry, and they try and find out uh, all about the celebrities' past and their uh, distant family history and all the things that they've got up to. This is probably the only time that you'll see both Jeremy Clarkson and Danny Dyer on a church screen as well, so enjoy that. Now, the one thing that I have noticed in watching this program is that almost every celebrity seems to be in some way distantly related to a British monarch, as though there's kind of a celebrity status that goes with the ancestry of having a monarch in your family. So Danny Dyer there, the cheeky chappy of London, uh, is very distantly related to William the Conqueror, and he found that out on the TV show. And uh, Matthew Pinsent, he's a very famous British Olympic rower, he found out that he was related to no less than three British monarchs in his, uh, in his family tree. So that was a big surprise for him. Jeremy Clarkson there is one of the few people who wasn't actually related to a monarch, but he was related to the people who invented jam jars. So, nice claim to fame for him as if he uh, needed it anyway. This chap here, uh, does anybody recognize him immediately? Well, his name is Lewis Carroll, Uh, and he wrote Alice in Wonderland. Uh, And he's better known as uh, Charles Dodgson, or lesser known as Charles Dodgson. That was his name uh, when he wasn't writing books. And uh, Charles Dodgson is a relative of mine. He's in my family tree. Uh, So uh, my grandmother's surname was Dodgson, and uh, it's her great-great-great-grandfather or something like that. So who do you think you are in relation to who your family is, is what we're gonna be looking at this morning. And this morning, we're going to be focusing on what Paul tells us about who we are and how we're to live in the knowledge of it during this new four-week preaching series. So if you've got your fingers in your Bibles there, turn to page 1187, and I'm going to start reading from Colossians, and we'll explore who we are this morning. 1184, sorry. Okay, Colossians 3, starting in verse 1, says, Since then you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on earthly things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So those are our verses that we're looking at this morning. The first thing I want to point out is whenever you see the word since then, or some of the translations that we've got, Uh, say the word therefore, then it's obviously talking about what's gone before. So Paul is saying, in light of everything I've just said, which is incredibly unhelpful because we're starting in Colossians 3. So we've got a whole of Colossians 1 and Colossians 2 that we're not looking at this morning uh, that that Paul starts off by saying since then. Therefore, with everything that I've already written that you're not going to be looking at this morning, this is what you're to do. So I'm going to take two minutes just to give you the background to Colossians and why we've got to where we are right now. So... Paul was writing to the church in Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, and he was writing specifically to that church because they were under all sorts of threats from other uh, New Age religions. So there was this big rise of Gnosticism, which was kind of a a, a religion of knowledge. You could think your way to to glory. You could think your way to heaven. Uh, There was also a big rise of angel worship going on in the city at the time that was threatening to undermine the church as well. And Paul was writing this letter to the church in Colossae to let them know in no uncertain terms who their God was. This is Jesus, and we are reminding you of the truth of Jesus and who he is and how you can live in the fullness of it. That's why Paul's writing this letter. Angels weren't to be worshipped, Jesus is. And the first four verses that we're looking at this morning are a bridge text that takes us from the first two chapters of Colossians that tell us all about who Jesus is. This is him, this is Jesus, this is the one we worship. And then there's these four verses that then bridge into the rest of the letter which then tells us how we apply it. If this is who Jesus is, then this is how we're to live. And these bridge verses here in Colossians are the gateway between the two. And it's classic Paul as well. If you're reading any of Paul's letters going through your Bible, you'll see that it's a, it's a very common way for him to write. He spends the first few chapters of his letters talking about, this is who Jesus is, this is God, this is who we worship, and then he spends the latter portion of his letters saying, in light of that, this is what you're supposed to do. So the first two chapters of Colossians are dedicated to Jesus and understanding who he is, and then we're to look at our response and application to it. So when he says, since then, therefore, he's saying, because of all of the things I've already reminded you about Jesus, this is how you're to live. So I want to just read some verses from earlier on in Colossians that help to explain a little bit about who Jesus is for us. Uh, It'll come up on the screen behind so you can follow along as I read. But Colossians 1 verse 15 starts this way, the Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel... This is the gospel that you've heard, that I've been proclaiming to you, and every creature under heaven, and of which, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is one of the most famous descriptions of Jesus in the Bible, and a reminder to the church in Colossae that Jesus wasn't just some angel, but he was God incarnate, the ruler of the universe, the head of the church, the fullness of God, our rescuer, who shed his blood on the cross to reconcile us to God. He is the one who has made us without blemish and the one the whole Bible points towards. Those are some powerful words from Paul, right? He's going in strong and he's telling the Colossians, this is the only true God, the one way to be reconciled, the one way to eternal life. The Gnostics couldn't think their way into heaven and the angels weren't going to provide the answer. Jesus is. That's what he's writing in his letter to that church. So as I said, Paul always begins with who we are before he tells us what to do. So... Since then, therefore, in light of what Paul has been writing, in light of what we've read, who do you think we are? Well, Paul tells us in the very next words, we are risen with Christ. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. So when we're thinking about who we are, we are raised with Christ, dead to our old life, hidden in Christ and anticipating glory. He's saying, hey, if you're a Christian, your life has changed forever. Remember how you used to live? that's rubbish, it's time to change. We don't have a series of commands to follow, a checklist, a to-do list, any pillars of faith, or anything that we have to do in order to, to make ourselves saved. What Paul's saying here is that we, uh, we don't have to, to earn our risen status. We just need to live in the fullness of who we are now, not what we once were. It's ours, we possess it, and we're supposed to live in the fullness of it. We are risen with Christ. It's important to understand who he's talking to in this portion of the letter. He's talking to people who are saved. So he's saying to those of you who believe, those of you who understand this, so those of you who've been made alive, you've been raised, past tense. We don't need to continue to work to be justified. God alone has done it, full stop. We've got nothing to offer God. He has done it all by his grace. You get his righteousness, and he takes on your sin and wrongdoing and rebellion And then he defeated sin and death forever when he was raised, and you are raised with him. We're to assume we're raised and justified by Christ alone. That's it. That's our status. So that's who you are most simply this morning. If you're a Christian, you have been raised with Christ. And you can say that over yourself this morning. I don't know if many of you keep up with the news locally, but there's been this one story that's captivated our household recently. Because there's this one house uh, out near uh, the Wessex Way, Uh, that you can win for a bargain price of 25 quid. So these guys obviously couldn't sell their house, so decided the best way to sell this house is to have a raffle. So one raffle ticket costs you 25 pounds, and you can win this mega home here. Let me run through what it's got. It backs onto the River Avon, and comes with its own fishing license. So you can fish right off your back garden into the River Avon. It's got a music room, a cinema room, six bedrooms, a games room, a snooker room, a sitting room, and a living room. Not that any of us know the difference. No, me neither. Uh, And you'll be pleased to know that it's got a breakfast area separate to the dining area, in case you want to eat your breakfast in a slightly different part of the house to the rest of of your meals. This house is massive, and I can tell you for sure, my house would fit in this house about ten times over. My point is this. If we won this house tomorrow, uh, we are supposed to live in the fullness of that house, right? You wouldn't expect us to move into that house, and because we've gone from a smaller house to a bigger house, we would just live in one bedroom, or maybe just use the downstairs bathroom, because... We don't really need the rest, you know. No, if you win that house, you live in the fullness of that house. You learn how to fish so that you can make the use of the fishing license. You learn how to play snooker so the games room doesn't go to waste. You learn an instrument so the music room becomes a music room, because it's not a music room without music. You live in the fullness of it. You fill it with people. I mean, come on, it's a six-bedroom house. It needs to have people in it. And you should live in the fullness of that house if you win it and not just confine yourself to the small bedrooms. It's what that house was made for. By the way, if anybody does enter the competition now, don't forget your old friend Nathaniel who told you about it, okay? So, with all this in mind, since we've been raised with Christ, what were we made for? How do we live in the fullness of it? How do we live in every area, every bit of space that we're supposed to live in, in the fullness of our identity as risen in Christ? What we've won, or what actually is more theologically accurate for us to say is what has been won for us is our eternal destiny, a personal relationship with the creator of the universe for all time. So will you live in the fullness of that, or will you confine yourself to your old way of living? We need to be on earth who we are supposed to be in heaven, living in the fullness of this new identity that's been won for us. It's our fixed status. It can't change, ever. So my first question for you this morning is actually, do you believe it? do you believe that you've been raised with Christ? Because that's what this morning is all about. If Paul is talking to those who've been saved, then do you consider yourself saved here this morning? Can you live in the fullness of this, or do you just totally not understand it? Because if you're in Christ, then you're to consider yourself risen with him and a part of his family, and you're to live in the fullness of it. And if you don't know Jesus, or if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian this morning, then this can be your status this morning. You may have turned up out of curiosity or been dragged along by a friend or a family member. But I'm telling you this morning, you can change your whole destiny. You can walk out of church this morning knowing that you've got an eternal future with God. You can be a part of his family. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about how you can do that later on. So, Paul has said, since then you have been raised with Christ. He then goes on to say, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So Paul's told us, you are raised with Christ. This is your identity. And because of that, set your hearts and minds on it. Set your hearts and minds on it. In other words, we need to reorient our thinking. We've got a new home in heaven alongside Jesus. We've got a new identity, a new family, and we will appear with him in glory. So what should our hearts or eyes or minds be set on? Paul, again, is very clear on Jesus. To know him, to walk with him, to have him shape us and understand the joy of our salvation. That's why Paul took two chapters to talk about who Jesus is in this book, so that we can have joy when we look at at Jesus. So he's spending the next two chapters now explaining Christ to people, so that when he says, set your hearts on Christ, people know why. This is how to do it. And I wanted to to give you some practical tips very quickly on setting your mind or setting your heart on Christ. Because I know it's very easy for me to stand up here and say, okay guys, this is what we're all gonna do, okay? Go, and then we're off. Uh, But actually sometimes it's helpful to just spend a moment dwelling on what actually practically we can do to, to set our hearts on something or to set our minds on something. Because it's not just some form of meditation that we all do as Christians that means that we're setting our minds or setting our hearts. It's actively seeking. And there are very many things that we can do to actively seek. Or set our minds on God. And there's going to be a little list up here behind me. The first of which is reading your Bible. This this Bible, this book, is the word of God. The scripture is full of truth about who God is, who Jesus is, and who you are because of it. When we read about the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, like Paul has been writing in this book, it's easy to, to have that big picture view of who Jesus is. And when you open the scripture, when you read your Bible and understand who you are because of who Jesus is, then that's helping you to actively set your mind. You're you're engaging with something. You're engaging with the words on the page that physically mean in that moment you are setting your mind on the things above. The next one is prayer. Nothing orients our heart better than praying for others. Praying for family, asking God for help, thanking God for who he is. It's in those moments that you can be mindful about walking with God and, and your relationship with Jesus. The next one is Sabbathing. And Sabbathing is it's quite an old word. It means resting in God. It's, it's something that, that we're supposed to do often. And actually, I don't know how life works in your family, but far too often when we're resting, we're kind of blobbing in front of the TV and we've got Netflix on and that's kind of the way that we get rest. But that's not really the way that the Bible talks about rest. Because when the Bible talks about rest, it t- it's talking about learning to take time out of your, your busy sh- day-to-day schedule to purposefully do something that brings you rest, to purposefully do something that draws you towards God. Uh, it might be, you know, re-engaging with nature is a great way for you to purposefully rest or do some exercise, some meaningful activity. Even as I was preparing for this preach, I got to a point where I was a a little bit uh, stuck for words. I went for a run, and it kind of re-engaged me as I was running and praying and listening, and that was something I was actively able to do that helped me uh, to to set my mind on God. The next thing is attending church. It's quite an easy thing to do this morning, isn't it? To set our minds on God, mainly because this guy here is talking all about God, so you kind of have to listen. It helps you to set and focus your mind on, on God. When we sing the songs that we sing, They're full of truth about who Jesus is. And as we sing them together, it should do you good. It should help you to set your mind, set your heart on God. Worship music is a great way for you to do that. Listening to Spotify at home, something that we do often as we're going about the the day-to-day of life, doing the washing up or whatever it is. And it's just another helpful way, listening to the words that helps us to remind us of who we are. It might be that chatting with friends or discipleship or getting into community really helps you to set your mind on God. I'm very grateful for some friends that I've got here who are often sending me links and verses and little notes about about our faith that I find really helpful in just aligning me to God in my day-to-day walk. So it might be that there's some people around here that could even encourage you to set your mind or set your hearts on God. Again, I want to underline this isn't about attainment. It's about reminding ourselves daily that we're entering into a relationship with our Father. These are just a few examples of things that we can do practically to set our minds on God, but they're by far, they're far from an exhaustive list. And I know it'll be different for everyone, but I I do want to encourage us. There's things that we could and should be actively doing as a part of our daily rhythm of life that should help us to set our minds on God. Now there's a a blog on the internet called Think Theology and Matt Hosier, who preaches here often, he's one of our elders, he writes often for this blog. uh, And you can go and have a look. It's full of kind of, uh, little daily things that, that uh, help to explain uh, Christianity and help to explain what we believe. Uh, and there was a blog this week that I found very interesting by a lady called Rachel Ruddy talking about mindfulness. And the reason I'm so interested in it is because mindfulness has become a bit of a buzzword where I work. I work at the university, and mindfulness seems to be the answer to everything at the moment. Hey, if you're stressed out, practice mindfulness. If you've got difficult health, practice mindfulness. If you've got a difficult situation, practice mindfulness. Hungry, practice mindfulness. It kind of seems to be the answer for everything at the moment. And I have to admit, personally, I I have been known to be a little bit skeptical of it in the past. We once had this conference where 300 of us were told to sit in a room and we were taught to be mindful about what we were doing. And the way that they did it was they handed out a chocolate bar to everybody. And everybody had to mindfully eat this chocolate bar. So they had to open the chocolate bar, smell it first, close their eyes, kind of eat it, savor every moment. And I was like, oh my goodness, what is this? Uh, So I'll be honest, I scoffed the bar and scarpered whilst everybody had their eyes shut. So I am a skeptic, but uh, in reading this post, I thought it was a really helpful way of kind of framing how some people actually uh, find time in their day to, to set their minds or set their hearts on God. Rachel's, Rachel's blog post talked about how she's redeemed mindfulness for Jesus, how she walks purposefully and looks out for Jesus at every turn, turning to nature to inspire her prayer as she goes. So she purposefully sets off from her house and goes on big long walks and uses nature to inspire her towards prayer or to help remind her of scripture as she goes. In her conclusion on her blog, she says this, I return home refreshed and full of the goodness of God, not distanced from the world, but fully engaged and grateful for the care and design God has invested in it. and thankful that God wants to meet with me and speak to me through his world. At the heart, mindfulness is to be still and know that I am God. It's to calm your mind, to invite the Holy Spirit, to help you notice the world around you, to see the things as God sees them, to wash us in creation's beauty, to recognize your smallness, but to know that you're loved to come as close to walking with God in the garden as we can. Theology should engage us, fill us and amaze us and point us towards God. Mindfulness is, is of nature is natural theology at its best. We pay attention to creation with the help of the Holy Spirit to enlarge our understanding of its creator and sustainer. So I am a big skeptic of things like that, but even I in reading that blog post was like, wow, she's found this amazing way to engage with her God on a day-to-day basis. I actually found it really helpful Uh, helpful way to do it. So maybe go read the blog, see what you think about that, Um, and whether even just getting out and and going for a walk and praying as you go might be something helpful that you can do. However you choose to set your mind on Jesus, the important thing is this. It's not a, a tick list that we're supposed to get through, praying, reading the Bible, doing everything you're supposed to do, but it's a reminder of who we are in Jesus. That's why we talk constantly about Jesus in this church. Every sermon, every Sunday, every song. It's not just an accident, we purposefully do it because we want to continue setting our minds on Jesus, pointing towards Jesus. It's not to promote legalism and everybody's gonna be different in what they choose to do, but it's a way of us engaging with our faith on a day-to-day basis. So what are you consciously doing every day as a part of the rhythm of your life that's reminding you of Jesus? Which of the things that I've mentioned will work best in setting your mind and your heart on the things above? How can you put them into the daily rhythm of your life? That's what Paul's encouraging us to do here. Uh, If you've been uh, here Sunday on Sunday, you'll know we've just recently finished a preaching series called Being Human, where we looked at some of the uh, modern pitfalls of life and how we as Christians should respond to them. Um, uh, Matt preached one on on the subject of technology and the pitfalls of technology and how they can uh, trip us up and distract us from the things that we're meant for. And I agree uh, with the points that he made that we shouldn't be ruled by our smartphones or how quickly we can respond to an email. But I must admit that I've also found technology to be very helpful in helping to remind me of those moments in in everyday life where I can just take 10 minutes and and spend some time with God. Um, Bible apps that ping at you at a certain point in the day and remind you to get into scripture. Or um, I know a number of us are in community Bible reading groups or CBR groups. Uh, If you don't know what they are, we've been uh, working through a journal together, some of us in groups at the church, uh, and reading a portion of scripture every day and and passing on reflections to one another of how the Bible's spoken to us in that particular day. And I find it really, really helpful because I get this little text message or whatever it is into my pocket, and it's a chance for me to engage with, with a bit of scripture, a chance for me to engage with my faith and do something really purposeful in those moments. If you want to get involved in something like that, we're going to relaunch our community Bible reading in September. And it's another chance for you to come and get involved with a group of people that you can read the Bible with as well. Uh, but if you want to know the secret to Christian life, it's this. Set your mind on Jesus. Set your heart on Jesus. That's what, you, that's what you're to do. That's the secret. There's no, there's no, uh, uh, yeah, there's no real big secret about it. It's setting your mind and heart on Jesus. Purposefully doing things to, to enter into a relationship with him. Paul goes one step further. He says, don't set your mind on earthly things but set your mind on the things of heaven. So when he says, don't set your mind on earthly things, what does he mean? Now, again, in the news recently, uh, I don't know if you've seen, but there's been an ancient tomb found in the port city of Alexandria in Egypt. And they were hoping that this tomb would house the remains of Alexander uh, the Great. They thought this might be it. We finally found his tomb. It's going to tell us all sorts of secrets about Alexander the Great and who he was. And they were very disappointed when they opened it up and they found that it wasn't Alexander the Great at all. Uh, uh, and they're still on the hunt, but I often find it quite fascinating when they find things from ancient history that explain a little bit more about how people lived. And actually, one of the uh, one of the burial rituals of the Egyptians at that time was that you would be buried with grave goods. You'd be buried with things that you might need in the next life. That's what they believed. Um, and in the tomb, when they opened it up, they found an alabaster jar that was full of things that they thought would be important uh, in the next life for this for this person that they buried. Um, And it gave away a little bit of information about who this person was and the sorts of things that they valued whilst they were here on Earth. A little bit closer to home. Again, because I work at the university, I'm very privileged to uh, get involved in a few situations. Here was a weird one. Uh, A couple of years ago, I got a call from some academics who were out in Winterbourne, Kingston, which is about 10 miles from here, and they found 10 Iron Age skeletons in the ground. Uh, There they are, are, all all five uh, graves that they found next to an old Iron Age villa, Uh, and it told us all sorts about how people used to live in and around Dorset. And the people here that were buried, they were buried with uh, bowls and brooches and pots and devices for making clothes and devices for making salt, and it told these archaeologists all about how these people lived, the sorts of things that were really important to them. They think that often they were buried with things that they really valued in life. They found this amazing, ornate comb that obviously somebody found really dear to them. It was a really dear possession of theirs whilst they were uh, living uh, on, on earth. And then they're buried, uh, and they're put into these graves in the middle of now what's a wheat field, uh, and that's it. There they've remained with their bowls and their combs and everything else for, for thousands of years, uh, uninterrupted until uh, we came along with cameras and whatever else. Um, But it all painted a picture of of what they found important and how they lived. And I wonder if, if we followed the same practice this morning, what would you be buried with that would tell people about your life and about who you are? Maybe something representing your job or a family photo or something that you hold dear. Maybe it's a football shirt for your favorite football team or your iPhone because you hold that dear. It's hard to be buried with a Netflix subscription, but perhaps you could visually represent it in some way. Uh, One thing that a lot of people are buried with even today is jewelry. A lot of people are buried with their wedding rings. Uh, And it might be, you know, that 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 is something that could give away something of who we are one day when we're we're buried with things. Um, But the truth is, no matter who you are, ancient Egyptian pharaoh, old English, Iron Age, salt miner, or a 21st century businessman, when you die, the things of this world will be left here. They'll be left in the middle of a field underground. You can't take them with you. This ring of mine is going to be left here long after I'm gone. So why should we set our minds on things above and not on earthly things? Well, I think Jesus said it best in Matthew 6, where he said this, "'Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.'" Now, football teams and Netflix subscriptions and all that sort of stuff aren't evil, but again, reflecting on what Matt said about technology a few weeks ago, they're all things that can distract us from our true purpose in life. And I'm not saying I don't do them, I enjoy them as much as as the next man, but uh, uh, for that reason I'm preaching this point to myself as much as anyone else, because we don't need to let these things rule or control us or take up time in our lives in an unhelpful way. Preaching this point with integrity is actually quite difficult because even when I'm preparing, I'm preparing in a house that's got a big TV and uh, it's full of distractions. And, you know, I really had to fight and engage to keep my mind on the things that I was trying to do. Our houses are full of things that can be a distraction. We've got to be careful not to elevate these things beyond what they should be. We're not to forget earthly things as we're still charged with living in this world, of working and communing and proclaiming the gospel. But our mentality, our mindset should be fixed on Jesus as we do so. We've got a new perspective, and we're to view earthly things from God's perspective. So the next time your neighbor or co-worker is winding you up, set your mind on heavenly things. What would Jesus' response to it be? Next time you're tempted into lying or gossip, set your mind on heavenly things. How would Jesus handle this situation? I know we all know this stuff, but these verses tell us why. We're to be constantly reminding ourselves and telling one another that this is the case. So what helps you to remember Christ and what helps you to be distracted from him? It's worth genuinely reflecting on this point because it will help you in your walk with Jesus. We're being told by Paul, pursue Jesus. Do things that bring you closer to Jesus. So I'm laboring this point because as fallible humans, it's something that we constantly fight to remember. And actually, when sin issues flare up, or marriage issues, or selfishness, or lying, or gossip, or pornography, at at those moments where we're choosing the wrong thing, we're not pursuing Jesus in those moments. And Paul is saying, pursue Jesus. Set your mind on heavenly things. Do things. Put things into the rhythm of your life that mean you'll be remembering Jesus in the things that you do. Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is your identity. So we don't do these things to justify ourselves, we do them to remind ourselves, this is our identity, it will never change. Again, this is all past tense, if you're in Christ, you have died, and you've died to your old way of living. You've died to sin's grip over your life, and you have died to your old identity, which had you destined for hell. And where are you now? You're risen with Christ, you are hidden in him. We're being told to cast aside our earthly thinking, our secular mentalities and values, and exchange them for God's heavenly values and morals. This isn't just a change of identity, it's a change of heart set and a change of mindset. We've been renewed in Christ, and our identity is that of his family. We're children of God. We are set apart for him, raised with him, and due to be seated with him in glory forever. It's a change of destiny, a change of destination for us. It's a change of family identity and all the inheritance that comes with it. And it's a change of heart and mind. Our values should change, and our responses to people should change. Our responses to situations should change. The way we think about things should change. Being a Christian isn't a one-time response to a prayer. It's a radical, destiny-altering decision that should penetrate every element of our being and cause us to totally change. One commentator on these, uh, these verses put it this way. The sorts of persons we've become in Christ... And the kinds of actions we now take as his disciples must always reflect what and in whom we believe. For the Christian, the marketplace, the town square, the workplace, the fields, the shops, and their ruling elites are all under the lordship of Christ too. Everything has changed because of what Jesus has done. We've got a new identity and our hearts and our minds should follow. Here, we're being told this should permeate every area of our lives. This isn't a religion for Sunday only. This is a whole new identity. Good, Spider-Man's up. (laughs) Now, I'm a big fan of Marvel superhero movies. Uh, This is good. We've even got a new lectern this morning. I feel like I'm preaching from the Death Star. It's very uh, authoritative, isn't it? Anyway, I'm a big fan of superhero movies, and I can't help it. I just love them. I love the good versus evil battles, the explosions and visual effects the uh, will the superhero uh, win out in the end, the origin stories, it doesn't matter what it is, I'm a sucker for it and I'll watch it. And I very recently watched the latest Spider-Man film uh, and it was talking all about how Spider-Man became Spider-Man. And we all know the story. He's a guy, he's at school, and he's just you know, going about his normal teenage things, and he's struggling with what all teenagers struggle with. And then one day he goes on a field trip, and as has happened to many of us, I'm sure, you get bitten by a radioactive spider whilst you're at the museum. And then you, you turn into Spider-Man, right? And that's, and that's what happens. So I'm watching this film, and I'm like, okay, I get it. And they always do the same thing, and Superman does the same thing as well. The very first thing that they do is they're like, right, Well, what I've got to do is now hide my new identity because I can't just tell everyone I'm Spider-Man. So I'm going to put glasses on and I'm going to go to school like normal and I'm going to pretend like I'm not Spider-Man, even though I quite clearly am Spider-Man. Like, the glasses are fooling no one, mate. But anyway, this guy's not Spider-Man anymore. He's just the same person that he was before. The problem being for Spider-Man is that the second that radioactive spider bit him, it changed his DNA. So he can try to not be Spider-Man all he wants, put his backpack on and go to school like normal, but actually now... His whole DNA has changed. He's meant for flinging webs and flying through city skylines and fighting crime and saving the world. That's what Spider-Man's supposed to be now. He's Spider-Man. His DNA's been changed. That's it. He's a new person. Well, this morning, you're all Spider-Man, okay? The moment you became a Christian, you were altered. Your future, your identity, it all changed forever. And nothing you can do can ever, ever change that. You can try and hide it, put the glasses on, put the backpack on, go back to school and pretend like you're not. But actually, your your destiny has been changed forever. You are a child of God. That is your identity, full stop, and nothing you can ever do can take you out of your father's hand anymore. How amazing is that? Our salvation can't be taken from us. And we're not truly living until we're living in the fullness of it. So we need to be swinging through the skyline, living in every room of the mansion, playing music in the music room, actively setting our hearts and minds on Jesus in the light of who we now are. Set your heart and set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Permanently set it. We're setting it like cement, not like jelly. We are setting it. It's a permanent state for us, okay? Paul then goes on to say, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So we've been hidden with Christ. Verse 3 points out for us that since we've been raised, since we've participated in his death and resurrection by believing in the power of his salvation, we're now hidden in the truth of it. We can't escape it. We're hidden with Christ. It's brilliant news for us and another reminder that it's not of our doing because Jesus Because of Jesus, the truth of salvation is inescapable. We're hidden with Christ. And Paul goes on to remind us twice in verse 3 and in verse 4, this is our life now. Christ, who is your life? This is your life. You're a Christian and your whole life has changed. We know because Paul tells us so that Christ is our life. Our permanent state is now with him, hidden with him. So setting our minds on him should be easier for us as Christians as we're reminding ourselves of our own permanent state. This is where we reside, like that big house, that big mansion that you could go away and win. This is our our permanent home. We're to live in the fullness of it. When Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. Jesus is coming again. There'll be a day when Jesus will return. Jesus himself talks about it in Matthew 24. And again, it's going to appear behind so you can follow along. But he says this, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And he will send angels with a loud trumpet call, and he will gather his elect, you, Christians, from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other, and you will be raised with Christ. It's a scary thing, and the Bible doesn't mix its words. For those who don't know Jesus, this is not good news. There will be a judgment day. The sins of all man will be laid bare. And those who deny his existence will see him face to face in that moment. There'll be no place to hide, no reasoning, no explanations that could possibly come close to God's glory. In that moment, all of us will just be stuck in wonder as Jesus returns. We don't know when, but we do know Jesus will come again. And the good news is, on that day where all sin is laid bare, those who know Jesus have a rescuer who paid for in full all that we have ever done wrong. So instead of rightfully receiving judgment or scrambling for some sort of explanation, we will be in glory with him. We've got a future anticipation to hope for. If you know Jesus this morning, this will be the case for you. You'll receive his righteousness in that moment. This should cause us to want to praise, and it should cause you to want to pursue Jesus. So pursue Jesus. That's what Paul's telling us this morning. Not for your own sanctification, but because if you truly understood the implications of your rescuer who took the punishment for your sin, if you truly, truly understood it, then you'd want to pursue Jesus with everything that you had. So, why do we keep reminding ourselves? Why does Paul say, set your minds, set your hearts, keep reminding yourself? Because he's our great rescuer and he is worth remembering and pursuing constantly. Again, Robert Wall puts it this way. Paul's claim is that in Christ, we're not only forgiven and redeemed by God, but we're also transformed into new persons, capable of knowing and doing the will of God. Nothing less than a moral revolution was triggered by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everything has changed in that moment. We've got a new identity. It's who we are now, risen with Christ, anticipating future glory where we'll be with him forever. And that was Paul's plan in writing these verses. To so remind us of who Jesus is. And then as we begin uh, continue to journey through Colossians 3 over the next three weeks and take the time to, to, to read these scriptures, we'll start to be reminded of how we should live in the light of who we are in Jesus. We are children of God, part of his family. We can't escape it. We're in his hands forever. We're risen with Christ and should constantly be reminding ourselves of our new state. So... As the band come back, uh, I just want to suggest a couple of responses to us, and then we'll come back and sing. The first, the first thing that I want to say is, is, do you believe it? Are you saved? Would you call yourself a Christian this morning? And if not, do you want to be? As I've talked about that day where Jesus will come again, are you in the camp where you're able to anticipate it and look forward to it? Or are you thinking, oh my goodness, that sounds awful? Do you want an identity rooted in the creator of the universe to have a personal relationship with somebody who has rescued and saved you from everything you've ever done wrong so that you can have a relationship with the creator of the universe? You can have a relationship with this rescuer, the one that Paul reminded the Colossians was the only true way to God and the only true way to heaven. You can't think your way in. You can't can't understand your way in. This is the one true way to get to know God. And for those of us who who do know Jesus here this morning, we're being told again to set your minds and set your hearts on him. So what do you need to do this week? What do you need to purposefully put in the rhythm of your everyday life that brings you closer to Jesus, that reminds you of who he is? It won't be the same for everyone, but as I said earlier, if you want to know the secret to a Christian life, this is it. Set your mind on Jesus. we're going to do that now practically. We're going to re-engage our bodies in worship and singing. It's a great way to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and who we are in Jesus as we sing truth about who he is together. So let me pray, and the band will lead us in that. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much. I thank you so much that we are children of yours that our identity, our eternity has changed forever because of what you did in that moment on the cross where you defeated sin and death, you rose again, and we have been risen with you so that we can uh, live in the fullness of relationship with you now. We can have a relationship with our Father in heaven, the one who created the universe and the one who made a plan to rescue us. We can know you today, and I thank you that we can anticipate a day where you'll come again, and we will get to know you and be with you forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. Amen.